Yo yo yo. Court in Myanmar has sentenced the oust, sentenced the ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi to another three years in prison. Well, based on this sentencing alone, no impact. Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Insight Myanmar Podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It is vital for this story to continue to be heard by people around the world. And that starts right now with you. to another episode on Inside Myanmar. Today we will be delving into a political topic. We're going to be discussing the concept of political neutralism, specifically with reference to Myanmar's recent history. Today I'll be joined by uh, Andrea Passeri and Hunter Marston, who have co-written a paper entitled The Pendulum of Non-Alignment, Charting Myanmar's Great Power Diplomacy 2011-2021. to uh, the paper was published in the Journal of Current Southeast Asian Affairs and is available to view online for free. We will be putting the link to the article down below. So, gentlemen, welcome to both of you. I noticed that you co-wrote the paper, but you wrote your own sections of the paper uh, largely independently. So I wonder whether we could kick off uh, with Andrea and you can take us through uh, the first few sections of the article in your own words for the benefit of the audience. Um, uh, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be to be here. And uh, essentially, uh, as you said, our article deals with uh, Myanmar's neutralist or non-aligned uh, diplomacy. And uh, essentially, uh, what we all know, or at least those who work on Myanmar's foreign policy, is that the country has... Uh, constantly, relentlessly prioritized uh, a neutralist or uh, non-aligned uh, diplomacy since its uh, very uh, independence. Uh, yet, in our humble opinion, uh, Myanmar has done so in 
very different and sometimes even uh, opposite uh, ways. And this is, by the way, why we titled the article as The Pendulum of Non-Alignment, because again, uh, in our opinion, Myanmar's uh, foreign policy has resembled the shifting motion of a pendulum uh, tilting uh, back and forth between two uh, ideal types, opposite uh, archetypes of uh, non-aligned uh, behavior, which we labeled as uh, uh, positive non-alignment on one end and uh, negative uh, neutralism. Uh, the former uh, stands out as a very dynamic and proactive type of non-aligned behavior, which in a nutshell seeks to uh, assert uh, independence and freedom of action in the international arena through the achievement of a diversified range of uh, international partnerships. Uh, on the opposite side of this uh, spectrum, uh, negative neutralism instead uh, seeks to uh, achieve uh, the same goal, which is, again, autonomy and independence, especially vis-a-vis -vis great powers, through self-aloofness. Uh, so even though the uh, goal, the purpose of the two strategies is pretty similar, their ratio is actually uh, totally different. And after providing a, a theoretical framework about these different types of uh, non-aligned behavior, we uh, analyzed the trajectory of Myanmar's foreign policy between 2011 and 2021. And uh, throughout this period, we identify a series of uh, stages as well as various crucial turning points where Myanmar, again, shifted from one approach uh, to the other. So this is, a nut in a nutshell, the um, topic and the argument that we tried to develop in this article. Okay, thank you. And uh, Hunter, if you can... Uh, go over the sections that uh, that you authored. I think specifically the history. Sure. Uh, well, uh, first I should mention, you know, Andrea um, uh, knows a great deal of this history and wrote uh, a fair amount in the introductory sections about the history of Burma's involvement and really leadership in the non-aligned movement during the Cold War. Um, but of course, you know, it's impossible to fit uh, an entire history of a country. Uh, dating back to post-colonial era into uh, a limited size paper. So what our paper does is focus on the recent administrations of the USDP party and the NLD uh, and primarily compares those before touching on very briefly the post-coup uh, junta foreign policy since 2021. So building on the theoretical framework, which Andrea outlined already, um, we look at the same same years through this lens of um, uh, positive non-alignment um, and argue that based on the demonstrated reforms and political legitimation uh, earned by those sort of technocratic uh, and, and I don't think progressive is the right word in Myanmar, which doesn't really have much of a progressive movement, but um, the 
allowing um, multi-party elections under a very carefully uh, scripted uh, military-owned constitution. Um, political reforms, including the uh, release of political prisoners and the invitation of foreign direct investment and international businesses into the country, as well as the release of Aung San Suu Kyi, um, all together boosted uh, Myanmar's ability or capacity to uh, hedge again and to um, engage with a variety of external partners. Um, so it did so while also welcoming uh, a spike in, in incoming investment and trade. Um, and so for the first time in decades, we saw a very proactive foreign policy from NAPIDA. Um, and I think these are evidenced uh, in, a, you know, we identify a number of uh, data points, but in um, 2012, President Obama came to visit um, Rangoon or Yangon, uh, meeting with Aung San Suu Kyi, and this really heralded a, a new step in the country's political future or, or direction at the time. Later in 2012, Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD contested by-elections and actually managed to enter parliament with a uh, 40-something seats at the time. Um, so all of these incremental steps um, built some goodwill uh, among the West primarily, who were easing economic sanctions that they'd had against Myanmar for some time. Um, and at the same time, Myanmar stepped up its diplomatic engagement in international fora like the United Nations. Um, I think it was uh, 2012 when, or no, it was 2014, wasn't it, Andrea, when um, Thane Sein traveled to uh, New York City for the UN General Assembly and gave a very um, positive speech saying that Myanmar wanted to be an international or um, a responsible player internationally once again. So uh, very notably, um, Myanmar chaired the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in 2014, uh, which was generally regarded as a success. Um, so I think this really solidified the country's coming out into the world again um, and re-entry on the world stage in a, in a positive and proactive way. Um, all of these signs are what we point to uh, in Myanmar's foreign policy of positive non-alignment. Um, it engaged more with the West to mitigate over-dependence on China and uh, authoritarian friends um, such as uh, the Communist Party in, in uh, China. Um, Following the Thane Sein administration, the NLD overwhelmingly won the 2015 election, and Aung San Suu Kyi came to the helm in 2016 uh, when the NLD entered parliament uh, in a leadership role. And unfortunately, very soon afterwards, the already simmering tensions between Buddhists and Muslims in Rakhine State, uh, and not only in Rakhine State, but they, they really swept across the country, and the level of alarm this triggered internationally um, as well as the ensuing bloodshed, uh, really massive scale of violence and the military's brutal crackdown uh, on Rohingya Muslims in Rakhine State led to a return of international isolation. Uh, and Myanmar was once again under economic sanctions from the EU and the United States. Um, and at this time, it found itself really um, in a sort of on the back foot and its foreign policy was much more uh, reactive rather than proactive. And despite the NLD's um, election manifesto in 2015, promising a non-aligned independent foreign policy, actually what we saw was a much um, 
more uh, or less proactive foreign policy in terms of the NLDs engaging with uh, international partners. Given the uh, relative isolation it faced from the likes of Washington and Brussels at the time, um, Aung San Suu Kyi ended up ended up traveling abroad less, engaging less in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, generally making fewer appearances abroad. And when she did travel abroad, she went to Hungary, for example, and met with Viktor Orban, uh, issuing a very bizarre joint statement about the uh, shared difficulties of Muslim immigrants, uh, which was not a good look for the country uh, abroad in terms of winning um, friends in, in you know, certainly the Muslim majority countries in the neighborhood like Indonesia, but generally around the world, the, the NLD government was suddenly uh, espousing a much more inward looking um, and uh, narrowly focused uh, sort of Myanmar first policy. And following uh, this trend, the military took power in 2021, in February, in a coup, and the trend of international isolation has certainly deepened as the country now faces really um, overwhelming economic sanctions from the West. But at the same time, the military junta has doubled down on its engagement with the likes of China and Russia, identifying a few authoritarian friends that it can work with, um, and you know, most famously saying. Uh, I think that the words of General So Win, that Myanmar would learn to walk with a few friends again. Uh, so it finds itself isolated and uh, unable to generate economic growth. The healthcare system has uh, overwhelmingly just collapsed, and the country's foreign policy is moribund. So at this point, the trend of negative neutralism is uh, really solidified. Uh, and, you know, going back to this idea of the pendulum swinging from one direction to the other, what we saw... Um, in the years 2011 through 2016, where we're sort of the gradual opening up of the country and uh, proactive foreign policy, which is very uh, soon thereafter swung in the other direction and is now very firmly on the side of negative neutralism. Okay, thank you. So there's, I mean, there's a lot going on in this article, and it, it seems to try to cover both the underlying uh, philosophical and, and uh, uh, political scientific concepts, as well as specifically examine um, milestones in, in Myanmar's political history, at, at least since the, uh, the Tainzain era and, uh, and touching on sort of earlier chapters as well. So I want to begin by examining some of the, the ideas and the concepts that are being put forth in this article. And the first one is the contrast between what you refer to as negative neutralism and positive non-alignment. So in the article, uh, and I believe, uh, Andrea, you were, you were the author of uh, this section outlining the, the differences between these. Yes. So you, you outline negative neutralism as disengagement from the international community uh, economic self-reliance and a, a sort of a distrust of the outside world in very simple terms. While positive non-alignment, you seem to characterize more as um, being interconnected with the international community, but not necessarily subservient to any one country. In fact, the word you use here, and you do use this word a few times, um, you define the worldview as a virtuous ethical tone. Now, um, I find that very interesting. It almost feels to me like 
positive non-alignment is almost trying to position your nation as the one to which other nations would want to align, trying to be a role model within the international community. And negative neutralism is, I think, what most of us would just refer to as isolationism. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that is absolutely accurate. Uh, I would say that uh, the idea behind uh, positive non-alignment is to project your country as a responsible stakeholder and a good citizen of the uh, international uh, community. Uh, so again, um, the uh, concept of uh, positive non-alignment uh, sort of underscores a logic according to which uh, the goal is to achieve a very diversified uh, range of diplomatic partners and interlocutors, which, and this is probably the key part, can act as reciprocal counterweights so that uh, the country doesn't uh, become uh, over-dependent on one single uh, partner, patron, uh, protector, and so on and so forth. And this is, in the case of Myanmar, clearly an antidote to uh, uh, becoming over-reliant on China, the People's Republic of China. The um, strategy of positive non-alignment in the case of Myanmar was formulated with a clear target in mind, which is, once again, uh, the PRC. Yes. And so on that topic, it's, it always seems to be that this comes down to what... what I want to use the word sovereignty. Uh, a lot of countries, a lot of governments, particularly governments that have a nationalist uh, bent like to use the concept of sovereignty. And we saw sovereignty as a rallying cry in, for example, the Brexit debates uh, back in 2015, 2016. So it is a term that is used quite broadly. And the notion of sovereignty as one country's right to act the way that it wants to act without other countries influencing it would seem like a, a driver of these non-alignment uh, policies, this non-alignment stance. The question that I want to pose, and this might be a very naive question, is, is it ever possible for smaller countries, what I, I think you refer to as secondary actors, to actually be independent of the whims and the actions of larger countries? Because it feels to me like if you're completely self-sufficient and isolated, um, then in theory, you might be able to do it. But if you interact with the outside world and you depend on that interaction, the big countries can say either you have to do things the way that I want you to do them or I will use my sanctions to positively cripple and punish you and that is going to drive you into the arms of another great power. Like, Is, is it possible for small countries to actually be sovereign and independent from large powers? It's a very good question. I think um, rather than provide a definitive answer, I would just point to sort of a phase during which I think Myanmar came closest to doing this. Um, and, you know, possibly we could go back further to the uh, era of um, Burma's involvement in the non-line movement. Um, but I think more recently, the clearest example uh, was the increased flexibility that Myanmar had in its foreign policy as a result of Western sanctions dissipating and 
in turn, uh, because the economy was growing suddenly in leaps and bounds under the Thane Sane administration, um, and this isn't because of some economic genius within uh, the Thane Sane government, it's purely because the country changed uh, its direction so drastically that the world was suddenly perceiving Myanmar in a new light and business people were flooding into the country to strike new deals and aid as new frontier. Um, but at the same time, this sudden interest, uh, like you were saying, countries are able to, uh, or, or um, non-alignment, the way you put it, I think was interesting, that it, it's essentially positioning your country as the spot or the place where countries want to align, other, other partners want to align with. Um, and I think that's, that's notable in that Myanmar was suddenly able to push back on China. So the example everyone points to was Thane Sane's decision to um, suspend the controversial Mietsom hydroelectric power dam in northern Kachin State, which was several billion dollars in uh, Chinese investment. And this really caught Beijing by surprise. Uh, suddenly it was on the back foot, whereas just a couple years ago, uh, China enjoyed overwhelming economic dominance in the country. Suddenly, uh, little Myanmar was pushing back and saying, you know what, actually, we're going to suspend this deal, put that on ice. Um, and suddenly, Beijing was forced to actually um, compete for influence in the country with the likes of Washington um, and European countries who were suddenly more involved. Um, and then Another notable project was the Chiaokyu um, Special Economic Zone and Deep Seaport in Rakhine State, which the Myanmar government renegotiated um, more recently under the NLD government. Um, I forget exactly what year this was, perhaps 2018, when the government renegotiated the uh, shareholder arrangement to favor Myanmar stakeholders uh, more than the Chinese conglomerates that were involved in the project. And this was, in a sense, uh, or in essence, um, Myanmar's economic sovereignty, the rediscovery of its ability to craft deals that were beneficial to the country, rather than simply ceding territory or ceding resources to overseas investors uh, like China across the border. Um, not to say China's the only one sort of rapaciously coming in and, and snatching up resources. Certainly Thailand is involved in that too. Um, but uh, China being the country's largest, tra largest trade partner, it was really um, a surprising sign of the times when Myanmar was able to assert a measure of sovereignty and push back on Chinese economic involvement in the country because it now had other options to hedge uh, against China and, and use other partners uh, to um, protect and enlarge its space. Yeah, if I can uh, add my two cents, uh, I would say that it's impossible by definition for a small country like Myanmar, which is, by the way, sandwiched between two giants like China and India, to be completely autonomous and uh, independent. Um, having said that, there are uh, strategies, insurance uh, policies uh, that can help um, countries, small countries like uh, Myanmar to sort of manage the, the risks associated with uh, living so close to uh, uh, great powers and, you know, entertaining unequal asymmetrical relations with this, uh, uh, with this power. So the idea, once again, is to avoid putting all eggs in one basket and uh, diversifying the pool of your strategic partnerships, diplomatic, 
uh, partnerships in order to uh, at least reduce uh, the degree of uh, dependence that you have on one single actor. Okay. And so th- this sort of leads into a, into an important question. Um, I mean, you two are obviously experts, like this may be obvious to you, but one would presume that in a, in a state administration, they would have people who can understand this, who understand that the strategic position, the value, um, the resources, the potential that Myanmar has, and would understand that a positive non-alignment is objectively superior for Myanmar than a negative neutralism or an isolationist policy. So what do you think was the driving factor for so many years of, of isolation um, after Nguyen's coup? I think in a nutshell, uh, regime survival. You know, it got to the point where um, Myanmar's military actually began to see reliance on China as a threat to its sovereignty. And um, uh, I recall seeing a report of uh, sort of... of what would you call it? Myanmar doesn't really have a history of think tanks, and this emerged from within the Defense Services Academy. Um, but a sort of white paper emerged that actually pointed to China and, and economic dependence on China as a state of national emergency. And really, uh, for the first time, they saw the chief national security threat to the country uh, as this Chinese economic dominance over the country. So there are certainly voices within the Tatmada or Myanmar military, which do see China as, um, and China's economic dominance as a threat to the country. And more recently also, um, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, there have emerged reports of, you know, various um, tabletop exercises wherein someone in the Myanmar military, and, you know, most of this is, is sort of not uh, well sourced or, or quoted in the media. So it's not, you know, I'm not 100% sure how accurate this is. Um, but supposedly a report emerged that said something like, um, you know, we have to plan for the eventuality or the uh, hypothetical scenario of a Chinese invasion. You know, what lessons will China learn? And, you know, what if China invaded Myanmar next? Um, so it certainly seems clear that there are some, you know, you could call them paranoid, uh, but there are voices within the Myanmar military that see China as a major threat to the country's security. Um, but that said, the reason it never became sort of a decisive, obviously it came to a decisive point, uh, it came to a head, I think, when the military crafted this roadmap to democracy, as, or discipline flourishing democracy, as it called it, with its 2008 constitution, that China was a, a major reason for the structural change in the country's politics. Um, but I think, you know, the same reason applies to the way the country, the military has reverted to its dependence on China now, despite seeing China as an economic and national security threat, because uh, what it underlines is that China is intimately connected to the Tatmada sense of survival as a regime. Without China's economic underpinnings and support, uh, and that extends to the diplomatic realm as well, the Tatmada is essentially isolated and won't be able to hold itself up. So then, it's very interesting that that's that's the case, and it's also something that seems to be a mindset that we do see across a lot of other Southeast Asian Asian nations. Um, 
And I, I just want to first question, what is the role that the colonial legacy has played in the the political desire for sovereignty and largely just the desire to be left alone by by external powers uh, within the Southeast Asian and broader Asian uh, political community? Uh, in my opinion, the, the legacy is huge. And, uh, you know, when you uh, experience uh, that kind of uh, situation of uh, colonial dependence, of subjugation from external powers, that definitely leaves uh, a mark, a scar on you. And uh, the legacy of the, of the colonial era is definitely uh, alive and kicking when it comes to Myanmar's strategic culture and the uh, imperative of safeguarding a certain degree of independence and autonomy and room for maneuver stems also from that kind of legacy. And as you said, this is not uh, something unique to Myanmar. It's uh, pretty uh, common in uh, the whole of Southeast Asia where uh, countries experienced uh, similar traumas uh, as far as uh, colonialism and European imperialism is uh, concerned. Yeah, just a second, Andrea's comment. Um, I often think of a book by uh, a scholar I know, Andrea and I have both, um, uh, who has influenced both of us, uh, the work of John Ciorciari, who wrote uh, this great book in 2010 called The Limits of Alignment. Um, and his whole theory essentially uh, hinges on the colonial legacy in Southeast Asia, which really informs small states' um, uh, reluctance to get in bed too deeply with uh, major power partners. And as a result of this colonial memory, uh, which oftentimes involves ceding territory to foreign armies and bases, for instance, you know, the Philippines with Subic Base and or, yeah, Subic Bay and Clark Air Force Base, um, these countries saw um, partnerships or alliances as um, really impinging on their own independence. And so I think this is very true in Myanmar's case as well. You know, Myanmar was uh, occupied and, and ruled by the British for um for many, many years and uh, subsequently was invaded by Japan. So it had to fight multiple wars to free itself um, from these colonial occupying forces. And really, I think this left deep scars on the country's national memory um, and especially led to actually the uh, power and, and uh, uh, vision or self-identity that the Tatmadaw continues to hold of itself as the protector of national sovereignty. This shared legacy is also pretty uh, visible and paradigmatic when you look at the role that Southeast Asian states played in the non-aligned movement from 1955 onwards, uh, when they again sought to assert sort of uh, equidistant position between the two power blocks, which was again considered as a crucial prerequisite to be relatively free and independent and autonomous in the uh, in the international arena so there is definitely a shared uh, legacy that uh, relates to colonialism and in turn informs the way 
many Southeast Asian states uh, uh, formulate and then implement their alignment strategies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, great powers. So I'm happy that you bring that up um, <laughs> because I wanted to ask about ASEAN specifically. And I know that uh, with Hunter, we, we discussed this on a previous podcast, contrasting the Ukraine crisis and the Myanmar crisis. But ASEAN uh, sort of draws parallels to the European Union, but at the same time, it's very different. The European Union is much more comfortable implementing policy across the Union and calling out member states who fail to meet certain standards. For example, the European Union uh, is calling out Hungary, is calling out Poland for the absence of rule of law. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of punitive measures being considered, the withdrawal of voting rights, the withdrawal of European uh, Union funding. ASEAN has a very strong history of non-intervention. And this Myanmar crisis has really pushed that policy to its limit. But what, to, to what extent is this uh, desire that uh, Asian states generally seem to have for non-alignment driving ASEAN's response to Myanmar or lack of response to Myanmar? Um. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, Andrea, if you don't mind, I, I think I'll just weigh in. I think ASEAN is unique in many respects here. Um, the diversity of ASEAN member states and their governance systems essentially means um, that no one is going to criticize the more authoritarian partners uh, because ASEAN's uh, cohesion as a whole really hinges on the idea that all members respect their counterparts' um, uh, right to govern as they best see fit. You know, these are internal affairs as they see it. And, uh, Thailand has most notably um, voiced since the coup. Um, I, I think over and above the European Union, um, the example of the African Union is an interesting one to look at. Actually, the AU suspended Burkina Faso after a military coup earlier this year um, and has condemned uh, coups in Africa. So it's been a vocal um, critic of authoritarian tendencies within member states uh, of its own, you know, African Union members. Um, far, far from the ASEAN's response, uh, where you see a few concerted voices, the likes of Indonesia, most recently Malaysia, um, as well as Singapore, who have been critical of the Myanmar military. Um, but ASEAN just lacks the enforcement mechanisms, the uh, collective spine, if I can say so, to really put up a stiff response uh, and speak as one when one of its member states really goes, goes in the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that we should uh, also consider that uh, the European Union and ASEAN are really different uh, as far as the uh, uh, integration uh, blueprint is uh, is concerned, like uh, the ASEAN way to integration uh, favors a very loose uh, structure, the uh, respect of the principle of non-interference, as Hunter was uh, saying, the idea that decisions should be taken by consensus instead of majority. Whereas, on the other hand, the European Union practices a tighter form of uh, integration, even though as a European, uh, I guess, we are all frustrated by the fact that the EU very seldom speaks with uh, one voice. Uh, 
So that is not, you know, the 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 guarantee that uh, a supranational actor uh, will be able to uh, actually, you know, speak with one voice and be uh, truly effective when it comes to dealing with security crises, that is, as in the case of Myanmar or the ongoing war in Ukraine. But uh, ASEAN and the and the EU are truly different uh, creatures when it comes to the way they envisioned their um, uh, integration project. ASEAN sticks to the slogan of uh, you know unity in uh, diversity, and this is essentially due to the fact that when ASEAN was first established uh, at the end of the sixties, its founding fathers were so different. Uh, on so many levels in terms of their political regimes, uh, religion, language, historical backgrounds. So the idea was to build, again, a loose structure that would uh, encourage and uh, support a progressive uh, integration between uh, these countries. But the the European formula in this respect is... uh, uh, truly, truly different. So, so I want to just ask a question that that definitely calls for speculation. Um, but could Myanmar, historically speaking, like looking from the coup uh, of Nguyen onwards, could Myanmar have successfully followed a uh, what you would call negative neutralist or, or largely isolationist policy? without falling backwards as it did in social, in uh, economic, in political, and in basically every uh, kind of metric? Could they have pulled it off successfully? Um, You mean practicing a successful form of negative neutralism? Uh, Yes, because you talk about uh, autarky or or self-sufficiency. And Myanmar, for example, is an exporter of a lot of goods. Like, could they have the resources, they have the food? Would it have been possible, or was it just always doomed to failure? Um, well, in my opinion, especially when it comes to um, um, promoting the economic development of a backward country like Myanmar, uh, a paradigm like uh, positive non-alignment definitely brings way more benefits than uh, negative neutralism. Uh, but again, uh, positive non-alignment cannot be practiced under all circumstances. And this is probably one of the most important points in our article because uh, the main hypothesis, the, the crucial factor that we sort of highlight in order to explain why certain countries like Myanmar alternatively rely on different forms of uh, neutralist behavior and why um, certain uh, uh, turning points uh, eventually materialize is due to the degree of political legitimization uh, retained by their leaderships. So again, the uh, hypothesis that we uh, developed was that a higher degree of political legitimation, both domestic and international, 
sort of sets the stage for the adoption of a more dynamic, proactive blend of non-aligned behavior, whereas a low degree of uh, political legitimization paves the way for uh, negative neutralism. And this could uh, be uh, seen, for instance, when it comes to um, Aung San Suu Kyi's government uh, after the outbreak of the Rohingya crisis in 2017, which dealt a mortal blow to the NLD's government, especially legitimation, especially in the international arena. And as a uh, consequence of that, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi sort of uh, increased a, her uh, xenophobic traits as uh, Hunter was uh, mentioning earlier with regards to her visit to uh, Budapest. Whereas when uh, political legitimation is high, between 1948 and the uh, early 60s under uh, Prime Minister Unu, or more recently under the Tainsane administration, uh, the leadership feels confident enough to embrace a more proactive dynamic blend of uh, alignment uh, strategy, which again, we nicknamed as uh, positive non-alignment. Uh, I definitely want to move to uh, the legitimation because there's a, there's a lot of information about legitimation in the article. But the reason I'm, I'm sort of asking this question, I'm playing the devil's advocate as it were, is because you do talk about the development of countries. And there is a certain degree in which you could understand the hesitance of countries like Myanmar who look at organizations like the International Monetary Fund, who look at heavy investments that have come out of countries like China, and they might say, look, I'm not comfortable uh, opening up, quote unquote, if it means taking on you know very large loans, which I have to repay, um, which come with so many strings attached that I'm effectively in a debt trap. Um, th this is the this is I think the the behind the scenes problem for a lot of smaller countries trying to do this positive non-alignment. I may be completely incorrect. I may have misunderstood, but uh, is there a, a sense in which? they would very legitimately, the Myanmar military would have very legitimately looked around and said, no one is going to really help us. Everyone is going to want to give us loans that are going to trap us in an endless cycle. So to protect ourselves, we, it is better for us to be um, negatively neutral. Would that have been a legitimate line of thought? Mm. Well, I think that was the line of thought essentially espoused by the um, uh, Burmese Socialist Party uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, turning inwards and self-reliance was really the explicit doctrine uh, put forward by uh, the military junta at the time and the, and the Socialist Party. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, ultimately it's not successful because uh, an underdeveloped country like Myanmar doesn't have the resources yet to uh, completely go it alone. Um other countries, you know, notably during uh, the Cold War, did more successfully practice 
uh, a practice neutrality or, or um, non-alignment uh, for you know s- certain periods of time. Um, ultimately, Cold War bipolar pressures really exerted such overwhelming force on these smaller countries um, like Indonesia and even Cambodia and Laos, which tried to sort of profess neutrality that you know they were upset by military coups or um, actual uh, you know wars being fought on their territory. Um, you know, India perhaps uh, withstood these pressures to a greater extent, given the size of the country. Uh, but Myanmar's turbulence um, throughout its history, you know, it hasn't really found a way to go it alone. And despite the military's best efforts, that go it alone mentality has essentially led to the country's uh, uh, overwhelming poverty among the general populace. And that doesn't extend to the military, which has, you know, mostly been able to reward its own and ensure that there are uh, corrupt cash cows and flows um, to uh, keep loyalty and keep junior officers in line. Um, But, you know, the converse, uh, the converse of this perhaps would be, you know, if a country like the United States was to truly practice uh, America first and sort of wall itself off from the rest of the world, um, it would have the resources to go it alone for, uh, you know, conceivably uh, decades, perhaps, given, you know, its, its abundant natural resources and wealth already uh, extant. But, uh, e- you know, even Trump's America First, for instance, which, you know, I don't think really compares to negative neutralism, uh, still sort of, you know, didn't... Um, extend to the true sort of negation of multilateral trade deals like NAFTA and uh, engagement with its neighbors, Mexico and Canada, which suffered from, you know, this time when, when the United States foreign policy was in upheaval. Um, but essentially, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, to truly practice negative neutralism and actually guarantee your populace have living wages and sufficient um, bread on the table, I think you have to start from a position of relative advantage, whereas Myanmar or Burma, you know, perhaps had that, you know, sort of inherent advantages when it was granted independence in 1948. It, you know, was at the time seen as the rice basket of Asia. It had uh, Rangoon University, Yangon International Airport was a hub. It, It looked like it was well poised to actually succeed on its own, practicing a form of non alignment. Um, but that was positive non-alignment and the negative neutralism that the military espoused in subsequent decades gradually walled the country off, contributed to international isolation and declining trade flows. And the investment that was coming into the country was in extractive resources, which took the country's uh, natural wealth out without leading to sustainable revenue generating uh, streams of income, jobs, and growth uh, for the wider country. It benefited the military, it benefited some of the military's cronies, uh, but negative neutralism has never really led to a successful um, economic or national development. Okay, so let's let's sort of jump into uh, the meat of the argument here, and that is the relationship between the types of align the types of non-alignment, whether it's negative or positive, and political legitimation. So the the article is basically arguing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that Myanmar starts off reasonably negatively isolationist following Nguyen's coup. Then we move forward into the Tensein 
era, which I typically refer to as a, a faux democracy, uh, but nevertheless opens up, starts interacting with the West, starts seeing sanctions being lowered, starts seeing some rapprochement. And then we have the NLD government continuing that trend until the Rohingya crisis hits. The NLD government loses a lot of its uh, international clout and the sense of legitimization of the government as perceived by the international community. And that triggers a backtracking and a descent back into this more isolationist, well, we know what's best for our country. We're going to do what we're going to do anyway. The international community can take it or leave it. Uh, and that obviously has been greatly exacerbated by uh, the coup, which uh, one of you referred to, I think, very beautifully as the new era of Praetorian rule. Uh, would that be an accurate sort of picture here? Yeah, it was. Definitely, it was. As you said, uh, there is a first uh, visible shift uh, following the uh, transition towards uh, a quasi uh, democracy in 2011, uh, Myanmar progressively turns towards uh, positive non-alignment. And as you saw from our article, uh, our opinion is that uh, the Tangsen era was a, a quite successful one, both in terms of domestic reforms and uh, as far as the reapproachment with the West was uh, concerned. And then we have yet another shift in the opposite direction, uh, namely towards negative nu uh, neutralism following the outbreak of the Rohingya crisis, which impacted not only on Myanmar, on uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's um, international um, uh, popularity and uh, legitimation, but also in terms of uh, her government's domestic uh, legitimization, especially vis-a-vis non-Bamar constituencies. I think it's an important point um, in the NLD years because frequently, as an international observer of Myanmar, uh, I need to remind myself that the sort of Western view and criticism of the NLD's defense of the military, uh, especially Aung San Suu Kyi's defense of the military's um, uh, crimes against humanity and the charges of genocide that were leveled at the Hague, uh, you know, wasn't really as decisive or existential a turning point uh, for those within Myanmar who still supported the NLD. So the majority of Myanmar people actually um, really uh, had wed themselves to Aung San Suu Kyi as the leader of the country's democracy and her nationalist and xenophobic uh, perspective and denial of the crimes, uh, the, the persecution of Rohingya uh, and, and deaths and reports of uh, all sorts of torture and abuses um, didn't affect their support for and the popularity of Aung San Suu Kyi at the time. That subsequently has changed as more Bama have come out and said, you know, we actually sympathize with the Rohingya and, you know, realize that 
something terribly wrong took place. Uh, but at the time, the domestic sources of political legitimation were still fairly strong. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi's international sources of legitimation had declined as a result. Economic sanctions snapped back into place against the military. Um, and as a result of the perception of Myanmar's inner turmoil, uh, overall investment and trade started to slow. So these started to erode the sort of some of the bases for her political legitimation, uh, but by and large, she still held loyalty within the country from Myanmar voters. And and I want to thank you for bringing that up because I, I remember being there at the time, and it was very it was very jarring to see that while there was an actual international case in the Hague going on and evidence had been. Uh, brought to the to the light of the public through, for example, the work that Reuters did, uh, but many other publications, you know, uh, found information and evidence of these crimes. There were huge billboards all along the main roads, you know, saying "Let us let us support uh, our leader Aung San Suu Kyi," and everyone was very happy and very proud when she when she went to the Hague to defend the country against allegations and and repeatedly denied them. And I think that this uh, really is important for one of the the big points that uh, that comes up in this article, which is the contrast between domestic and international senses of uh, legitimation, and the idea that this is a a sort of vicious cycle. If you lose domestic legitimation, you are likely to follow policies that are also going to lose you international legitimation, while when you see an increase in your legitimation in one area you are likely to pursue a policy in the other that is going to increase your legitimation as well. Is that what we were seeing with the, the fall of the legitimation of the NLD about 2017? Yeah, so the two are very much uh, related, as you note here. So um, I don't have the specific charts in front of me, but what our paper points to is the declining GDP growth and foreign direct investment in the country, which peaked under the Thane Sane years. Again, we're not praising Thane Sane's government. You know, it's not like the USDP was the savior of Myanmar by any means. Uh, but comparatively, the data shows that Aung San Suu Kyi's tenure saw declining economic growth. Um, but, you know, and here's where it's, it's uh, linked the sources of political legitimation because Aung San Suu Kyi's or the NLD's election manifesto in 2015 and 2020, which was largely the same, uh, pledged economic uh, growth and jobs as sort of the forefront of their policy pillars. Um, you know, it did uh, to a certain extent uh, begin to grate on the party when they couldn't generate the promised economic growth that they saw. Um, and, you know, similarly on the peace front, um, Aung San Suu Kyi pledged to prioritize um, national reconciliation between various armed groups. Um, she replaced the Thane Sane government's uh, previous uh, peace dialogue um, uh, working group with her own and uh, was largely unsuccessful in bringing together these disparate groups, with the which the military had built some support for uh, under the Thane Sane or USDP era. Um, so all of these sort of 
related policy failures did start to chip away at the domestic political legitimation. But as I said before, overwhelmingly, the Bama majority and Myanmar people still saw her as the best bet. And, and therefore, the NLD received a huge share of the votes in 2020, once again, confirming the country's support for the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi, despite these gradual erosions of political legitimation. Uh, yeah. Uh there was, however, a price that uh, Han San Suu Kyi and the NLD had to pay in order to uh, win the 2020 elections and in order to sort of uh, nurture this declining domestic uh, legitimation, which was turning their eyes again towards uh, China. And we can see that if we compare the attitude and the approach showed by the Tainsane administration um, uh, with regards to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which was pretty cold and diffident versus the um, enthusiastic uh, um, approach and uh, uh, mindset that uh, characterized Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, participation in the uh, BRI. So again, uh, uh, there is a price you have to pay in order to practice uh, positive non-alignment, or at least you have to uh, uh, be strong enough and you have to be legitimized enough, both domestically and uh, internationally, in order to implement a successful strategy of positive non-alignment. And in the case of the second half of the Aung San Suu Kyi administration, the, the credit, the popularity, the consensus was not there. And this is why uh, uh, the NLD government increasingly relied on a negative neutralist uh, approach, which also meant looking once again uh, back at China as uh, Myanmar's main economic partner, but also a diplomatic protector, for instance, uh, at the UN Security Council, where China utilized, as it did various times uh, back in the uh, uh, previous decades, its uh, veto power to uh, protect uh, Myanmar from the diplomatic fallout of the 2017 Rohingya crisis. And I, and I want to stress that that's a significant thing. China does not use its veto power as often as, as uh, some people would assume. It very often waits for Russia to veto something. It doesn't like the negative fallout. So the fact that the Chinese were willing to defend Myanmar in that case, uh, I think is pretty significant. But I want to turn to a different question on this idea of legitimation, which uh, in your paper you point to a classification system by Holmes, which uh, enumerates seven different types of legitimation. We're not going to go through all of them because it's not particularly important. But what is relevant is that I find that the rhetoric of the military, the Tamado, very heavily is based on a series of things like what Holmes characterizes as old traditional, basically, you know, divine right. We rule by divine right. Uh, the teleological, we are the ones who know what's best for the country. Other people 
don't know what's best for the country, so it's best not to even ask them. Uh, and and a nationalist type of legitimation saying, well, we're here to protect the country, we defend the country from external threats, therefore we should rule the country. Uh, these types of legitimation don't really have a huge amount of currency uh, among most Western countries generally. Um, so how did the Thainsane administration, especially following the passage of the 2008 constitution that it was farcical, and the 2010 election, which was so transparently rigged that the NLD boycotted outright. How did the Thainsane administration win uh, legitimation in the eyes of the international community? Um, a quick one. Uh, political reforms uh, and economic reforms, namely the uh, progressive liberalization of the economic sector and uh, you know the, the thousands of prisoners that were... Uh, released the lifting of the censorship law. There were several steps that uh, endowed um, uh, uh, the Tencent administration with uh, a proto-democratic uh, type of legitimization, uh, which, again, as you said, uh, doesn't stem from the 2010 elections, which were uh, totally uh, rigged. And also, of course, the decision to readmit the NLD, which will later win the 2012 by-elections in a landslide, uh, also uh, um, uh, fueled this kind of proto-democratic uh, legitimization that uh, the Tencent administration uh, progressively enjoyed throughout its uh, quinquennium in power. Yeah, I think the international component is perhaps easier to see, you know, domestically. So I was in the country first in 2010 before elections, uh, working with civil society when people were, you know, literally, um, I, I don't like to describe Myanmar as, you know, sort of living in fear, um, like Christina Fink's book, exactly. Uh, but there was a palpable sense where civil society organizations were just operating underground. People, you know, were looking over their shoulder, uh, and I was warned to look out for military intelligence. Uh, compared to 2012, you go back, um, and I should add, you know, before 2011 uh, or 2012, people couldn't gather publicly in numbers more than five. Um, and so just the feel of everyday life returning on the street within the country after 2012 um, or 2011 when political reforms began apace uh, was was very discernible, immediately noticeable. Uh, just seeing people go to the mall, go shopping, you know, hanging out, young people uh, carousing. Um, it seemed like a different culture all of a sudden. Um, not to say that that was all substantive political reform, because much of it was merely sort of um, uh, superficial, as you know, we, we can now observe with the military, the quickness with, with, with which the military snapped back to control over the country's political institutions. But on the international side of that, you know, there was a great deal of excitement, I think most notably with the travel uh, of U.S. officials like Hillary Clinton and then Barack Obama, who visited twice, uh, coming for ASEAN again uh, in 2014, or the East Asia Summit in Naypyidaw. Um, and 
I think the U.S. was essentially all in on this bet. Uh, and part of that stems from the Thane Sane administration's ability to signal some genuine seriousness about reforms, uh, but also a willingness to push back on China which really got the attention of Washington. So the Obama administration in 2008 had initiated a Burma policy review, nominated a special envoy, Derek Mitchell, who then became the first U.S. ambassador to the country in over two decades. Um, so the U.S. was moving very quickly to signal that it supported Myanmar's reforms. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this hinged on U.S. concerns with Chinese influence in Myanmar. And it saw democratic Myanmar as a potential partner in uh, its democratic front, um, you know, to put it crudely, a democratic front against China. Um, you know, U.S. foreign policy and Indo-Pacific politics are a lot more complicated than that. Uh, but I think that really lent a lot of momentum to the pace with which uh, international partners embraced Myanmar. Once the European Union and the United States lifted economic sanctions, um, everyone was rushing in to do business. Yeah, I mean, as Hunter uh, rightfully said, I guess that the, the timing of this opening up was also perfect because it actually unfolded uh, pretty much simultaneously with the uh, pivot to Asia. Uh, and, you know, in hindsight, I guess we can uh, claim that the uh, reapproachment uh, with Myanmar was probably the main success, the main, uh, the most important outcome of the pivot to Asia itself. So the timing was definitely a factor uh, also in this, in this respect. But just to circle back to your question with a very quick note, I think we should also uh, highlight, and Hunter uh, did it uh, previously, that the Tainsane administration was fairly successful also in terms of the peace process with uh, domestic ethnic minorities. Uh, the Aung San Suu Kyi government inherited a ceasefire agreement that had been inked and brokered by the Tainsane administration, whereas on the other hand, the NLD's um, um, mission of sort of uh, uh, recreating a 21st century Panglong uh, conference to bring, uh, uh, to ensure a permanent peace in Myanmar turned pretty quickly into a fiasco. So that is also another element that I guess contributed to Tang Sain's rising legitimization, both uh, domestically and internationally. Okay, and so my, my question is, the international community's response to all of this, uh, because I do remember being there in during the NLD years and seeing this same sort of policy. I remember that there was a lot of soft diplomacy happening. Australia was paying for education for the uh, for the military and for the public service. I know that uh, India was doing much the same. I know that China was doing much the same. The Americans had the American Center. There's a lot of soft diplomacy going on, and there was this feeling that Japan. Japan, definitely. Although I may be wrong. I may be wrong. And maybe you can speak to this. My understanding is Japan does it sort of out of a sense of apology for for World War II. Is that an accurate description of Japan's policy there? 
Uh, that actually happened during the 70s with the so-called Fukuda doctrine. Uh, but uh, in truth, Japan never left. I, my, my sense is that Japan actually never left Myanmar, even in the darkest days uh, after 1988, it, uh, uh, it, it stayed in the country. And uh, of course, with the pivot to Asia, with the reapproachment between the United States and uh, Myanmar, also Washington's uh, junior partners, the European Union, uh, uh, Japan, uh, Korea felt more confident to actually uh, um, engage the Tainsan administration. Yeah, and Japan historically has built uh, enormous amount of goodwill in Myanmar because it's the largest provider of ODA or official development assistance. And Japanese businesses, as Andrea alluded to, uh, have been in the country for a long time and have strong relationships. Hmm. And I, I believe they still are the largest, um, the largest source of scholarships as well for uh, tertiary education uh, out of the country. So I've I've definitely noticed this as well. But the, my question there is: Was the international community like? Did they did they see through this and just understand that? Well, Tainsen is still better than Tan Shui. And he's still willing to push back a little bit on China and we can try to balance Myanmar's position a little bit, even though we know he's not really going to take the country democratic. Or was Thane Sein, uh successfully selling the idea of long-term uh, reforms towards a democracy to the international community? Mm, that's an excellent question. Um, I think still people are going to be arguing about this today. Um, you know, uh, at the outset, I think it's clear that Than Shui appointed Deng Sein because he was seen as, um, <laughs> I guess, a relatively unassuming uh, sort of political leader. He wouldn't rock the boat, so to speak. So he wasn't anybody's predicted um, future president. Uh, and, you know, this is largely why Shui Man was so upset about his role as Speaker of the Lower House, because uh, he was the number three in the junta uh, and assumed that he would be sort of the next top guy. Um, whereas Thein Sein was, was really unexpected, and many people uh, came to the conclusion that uh, he was picked precisely because Thanh Shui wanted to spread out the power across this new um, semi-civilian government so that he didn't have any immediate challengers come after him. Uh, because historically, dictators in Myanmar have not really exited stage peacefully and, and enjoyed retirement like Thanh Shui has, actually. Mm. Absolutely. So then, looking at Aung San Suu Kyi, there's a different thing there, obviously. During the Teng Teng government, we see the transition away from isolationism towards reform. And then after the Rohingya crisis, we see the opposite reaction. Um, and it, I wonder, did the international community react differently than it would have uh, otherwise. The, the the situation under the NLD was not as dire as it was under Tan Shui. The genocide of the Rohingya uh, to one side for a moment, and, and obviously that is a, a heinous crime against humanity that needs to be investigated and, and prosecuted. But in terms of political freedoms, in terms of economic development, in terms of openness, the country was not running back to this near-win era uh, sort of hyper-isolationism. Was the level of 
condemnation and and the sudden pivot from the international community more harsh just because they they perceived any step backwards or or did they really see uh, a downward trend that was not going to stop otherwise mm. um it's a good question and again a lot of this is still uh up for debate hotly contested um but i think so a couple things to say firstly is the dramatic fall from grace of Aung San Suu Kyi, the hopes and expectations on her as a redeemer of the country's politics and democracy were so high around the world, especially in the West, which, you know, had put her on the cover of Time magazine, uh, awarded her uh, a Nobel Peace Prize. She was seen as a champion of democracy for multiple decades. You know, this, um, you know, relentless uh, champion for the country's uh, future and reconciliation against the military, you know, this, this, um, sort of, uh, meek, um, quiet, determined leader, uh, under house arrest, standing up to the powerful Myanmar military. Um, and so when she came out as, you know, relatively supportive of the military, making conciliatory statements, like, you know, my father was the founder of the Myanmar military, the Burma army, um, you know, that was one thing. But then when she defended the, the military against charges of genocide at The Hague, people thought, I mean, I say people, the West really reacted uh, very negatively, very strongly and vocally because this was seen as the ultimate betrayal. Aung San Suu Kyi was defending the entity that, that Western countries had sanctioned and uh, vilified for generations or um, decades, really. Um, so th- I think that's... Uh, one one factor, but you know, at the same time, there were other signs that were worrying. Um, politically, the NLD government actually targeted more uh, independent journalists for charges of defamation when it spoke critically. When journalists or activists would speak out against the uh, NLD and you know, really anodyne stuff, um, the uh, security forces would go after and target and prison uh, and press charges against these um, journalists. So there was a, a sort of creeping um, crackdown against civil society under the NLD. Uh, not to say that this was something that rose to the level of the previous military junta. It certainly didn't. Uh, but things weren't all sort of peace and democracy under the NLD either. So I want to sort of reframe this in terms of legitimation. So yes, absolutely under the NLD government, we saw a rise in the application of Section 66D um, of, uh, I believe, the Communications Act, which is effectively just a, a censorship law against uh, against journalists. And uh, definitely something that once the Rohingya issue started to come to the fore, the government actively used to, to quash dissent and disagreement on that issue. But what you're talking about with regard to Aung San Suu Kyi here and the, the fall from grace, that speaks to the charismatic type of legitimation, the idea that you have this, you know, glorious individual. And that historically, I think, has always fallen flat. I mean, we look at a recent example, President Obama, he came in on this huge wave of, of hope and reform and all these sorts of things. But the political establishment and the political realities of the United States and the checks and balances are such that he cannot single-handedly reform the nation. Aung San Suu Kyi very similarly could not reform the nation, especially under the 2008 constitution. And I, I would say that her legitimation rests more on the fact that she actually won a landslide victory in a democratic election 
even though a quarter of uh, both houses of parliament went automatically to to the military. So how does she fall from grace in terms of of the West's sense of legitimation when she continues to be the democratically elected leader of a country and she continues to have the support of the people in her country? Um, is it just because this charismatic figure has fallen from grace? Is it the Cinderella story we no longer have? Or, or was there something else going on? Well, I guess that uh, at the end of the day, uh, what really mattered and what really triggered this uh, brutal reality check for, for the West and this visible fall from grace was that uh, in 2017, Aung San Suu Kyi decided to side with the military instead of calling the military out. And yeah, you could say that uh, it was a risky move. It could have led to new incarceration to the uh, end of the uh, NLD government. Uh, but again, this is probably what uh, triggered the fall from grace. And we should also consider that when uh, the NLD uh, government took office, one of its uh, main uh, goals uh, was to reform the 2008 constitution. And uh, even in that respect, uh, we didn't see any, any progress. Uh, what happened after the uh, 2017 uh, crisis was that the narrative of the Aung San Suu Kyi government shifted towards uh, a nationalist uh, rhetoric, which uh, gave birth to a series of uh, meaningful moves, both in the domestic arena and internationally. Uh, domestically, for instance, the idea of building a wall at the border with uh, Bangladesh in order to uh, uh, prevent the influx of uh, foreign immigra immigrants was, again, clearly a decision that was informed by a nationalist uh, xenophobic rhetoric, which clearly stands uh, at odds with the uh, narrative that had been embraced by the NLD uh, party and its leader uh, between 2012 and 2015, where the NLD was an opposition party, but also during the first half of the uh, NLD uh, administration, namely between 20, the, the, the start of 2016 and the summer of 2017. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I want to turn to the modern day. So we've seen the opening up to the international community under Thane Sein, the continuation under the NLD, and then the fall from grace of the NLD. And last year, we saw the seizure of power in a coup. Um, now, in terms of legitimation, the military dictatorship has no legitimacy as far as the international community is concerned, except that Russia will protect them in the Security Council. But I don't think any country in the West, at least, would stand up and say that the military has lawfully or legitimately taken power. They do not have the support of the people. 
and they tangibly do not have the capacity to administrate the country on the ground. So as far as legitimacy and legitimation is concerned, uh, they're pretty much at zero. And we've seen massive sanctions being racked up. We're seeing international um, companies pulling out of the country. We've seen Chevron and, and Woodside and Total and so on. So what what is likely to to happen here? Do you think that uh, Minan Lying is going to try and do something to increase his legitimation, either domestically or internationally, and try to win the support of the international community? Or are they going to double down on isolationism? Um, I will leave the second part of the question to answer, but um, <clears throat> essentially you are, you are right. Uh, the current uh, military government falls uh, outside, uh, beyond our analytical framework, uh, based on the concept of uh, legitimacy, because it its uh, right to rule, so so to speak, is uh, based exclusively on coercion rather than uh, legitimization. So uh, uh, the the shift right now is towards negative neutralism. Uh, is from negative neutralism, pardon, towards a full-fledged blend of isolationism. Would you say that what we're seeing currently is a stronger trend towards negative neutralism than we had during the Nehwin years, or is it not that far gone yet? Um, I would say that it's uh, stronger, and Myanmar is already more isolated than it was, let's say, in the late uh, 60s or early 70s. So I guess we are already one step uh, further in that respect. Yeah, without looking too much to the past, although I think there are some differences. You know, Nguyen also forcibly evicted Indian and Chinese um, nationals living in uh, Burma at the time. So he had these sort of random spouts of violence um, and xenophobic uh, paranoia as well. Um, so I, I think the trend of negative neutralism was very strong under the Nguyen regime, uh, but you know it went through various ebbs and flows at the same time. And Nguyen, for a time, was also courted by the West uh, because of his rejection of um, uh, the Burma Communist Party and, and Chinese communism and its influence in Southeast Asia. Uh, so it was seen as an ally in that regard. But looking forward, um, Myanmar's junta has deepened this trend of negative neutralism that we identified. Um, and I think, you know, there were very few proactive elements of that to begin with. Uh, but, you know, at least Minong Lang made a show of ASEAN diplomacy, trying to engage that regional organization. And they still sort of do, uh, even though ASEAN has basically given them a bit of a cold shoulder by denying uh, junta representation at the senior meeting levels uh, summits. Um and so I think that's rubbed the junta the wrong way, and they've really pushed back on ASEAN and really rejected international diplomacy outright. Um, and that said, they've doubled down on their partnerships with Russia and China. Um, and it's not as simple as sort of a return to outright reliance on China, which we had seen uh, during the 2000s and the 1990s. Uh, today, I think Min Aung Hlaing personally probably has a lot more interest in the partnership with Russia. So Min Aung Hlaing, um, since he came to power as the commander-in-chief um, uh, roughly a decade ago, he has traveled to Russia himself at least seven times. Um, so he's put a lot of personal face time in this relationship and really sees Russia, I think, as a hedge against this reliance on China. 
Um, and at the same time, you know, he, he's really, the junta has bent over backwards to invite the return of Chinese investment and infrastructure projects. Really in the early days of February after the coup, Min Aung Hlaing was already making statements about the welcoming the resumption of hydropower projects as a subtle or not so subtle invitation to China uh, to really, you know, stick stick around and remain friends with the military, um, despite its, as you note, its inability to command control over the uh, majority of the country's territory. Um, but Russia, you know, provides an alternative now in many ways, um, and the Myanmar junta has been importing billions in Russian arms for some time. Russia is the second largest provider of weapons. And I think that's really a strategic asset that the military uh, will not soon forget, given uh, its historic mistrust of China. Mm. And I want to just touch on that ASEAN point a little bit, because ASEAN has not exactly cut off relationships with the junta. We recently saw representatives of the military being invited to a security summit, which in and of itself does make sense. And you note in the article as well that Min Lang supported the five-point consensus of ASEAN until he got back to Myanmar and started talking about, well, yeah, sure, but only after we establish uh, control domestically, <laughs> then we can start talking about this consensus. A day later, yeah. Is the Myanmar military likely to try and gain uh, legitimacy through interacting with ASEAN or throwing ASEAN a bone? And is ASEAN likely to allow the military, uh, is my question here, to gain that level of legitimacy through interaction with the organization? Well, we see some countries in ASEAN, like Malaysia with the foreign minister Saifuddin Abdullah, um, pushing back against the military and reaching out to the national unity government to give the NUG that same sort of legitimation in the eyes of the international community? Um, well, I think, like I was saying early on, uh, the junta really saw ASEAN as an important legitimizer of its rule, um, and it sought to make uh, a great deal of the significance of Minong Lang's and various um, junta officials to ASEAN summits uh, that played well, or I shouldn't say it played well. We don't really know how it plays in the domestic media when it's published in the likes of Global New Light of Myanmar, state mouthpiece of the Myanmar military. Uh, but, you know, the fact that it's splashed all over the cover whenever uh, Minong Hlaing meets foreign officials, when Cambodia's Hun Sen visited the country in March, um, you know, the, the junta really plays this up and sees any interaction with foreign leaders as uh, important to its legitimation, even if that doesn't play at all domestically. And that's only to an internal audience um, to say either to the military, look, we're doing great, you know, stick with us and, and stay loyal. Or to the people that resist the military rule, there's no hope in resisting. Look at these leaders embrace uh, the Myanmar military, the Tatmada. You know, we, we are already, we have secured our legitimacy. Um, so I think there's sort of a twin message there. But, but the point being that ASEAN has advertently or inadvertently played into that. Um, you know, some countries, some members of ASEAN are more careful to uh, not grant the junta those basic acts of legitimacy. Uh, but others like Hun Sen are, you know, reckless in, you know, giving up those appearances for uh, at no cost, you know, while making a case for the release of uh, Australia's Sean Turnell or um, meetings with Aung San Suu Kyi. But really, you know, Hun Sen's not giving a serious effort to diplomacy and, and working towards a diplomatic resolution here. He, he's, you know, trying to... Um, 
undergird his own political legitimacy at home by going on these uh, sort of goodwill tours. Absolutely. So, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for your time and for a very stimulating discussion. Uh, as is our custom, we do try to give all of our guests an opportunity to leave the audience with uh, something to mull over or some uh, final thoughts that we didn't manage to cover during the course of our uh, talk. So, Andrea, I want to begin with you. Is there any uh, concluding idea that you would like to leave our audience with? Oh, I would like simply to say that uh, our uh, work is uh, still uh, a work in progress and that there are still lots of uh, things that can be uncovered, uh, both uh, theoretically and uh, empirically when it comes to Myanmar's uh, foreign policy trajectory. And yeah, we hope that our uh, peace will serve at least as a source of uh, inspiration. And uh, we hope to see uh, further uh, contributions uh, coming out on this niche uh, topic, which in our humble opinion is uh, pretty relevant uh, uh, as far as the future of the uh, Asia Pacific is uh, concerned. Okay, thank you. And uh, Hunter, any final thoughts or inspiration from you? Yeah. Um, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to join the show again. Uh, I'm really glad we uh, had the opportunity, Andrea and I, to discuss our paper here. We also have a book chapter coming out soon, hopefully, on this topic um, through the Institute for Southeast Asia Studies uh, in Singapore, um, which will talk again about the, the sort of recent non-alignment postures of, of successive Myanmar governments. Um, but, you know, to push back again against our own theory in a way, uh, or to sort of problematize it, you know, typology, our typology is not um, predictive in a way. Uh, really, the future of Myanmar remains unwritten. And I think uh, if we can make any sort of educated guesses uh, of any future government under the likes of a national unity government or democratic coalition, um, there are lessons to be learned what, what goes into successful governance in Myanmar. Um, and, and this is a combination of economic policies and social messaging. Uh, but Myanmar is so complex and so fraught with divisions and historic mistrust between ethnic and religious groups. So any government that's going to be able to guarantee security, peace, and democracy and human rights across the country will have to do something to deliver sustainable growth and equitable jobs um, to a, a variety of people while working with ethnic minorities and bringing everybody under sort of a bigger umbrella to earn trust and buy-in into the next democratic chapter, which I'm confident will eventually come. I'm not sure when uh, the country has a long road, a long uphill battle to get back there. Uh, but the country's youth and the generation that came of age in the 2000s and 2010s uh, fought for many years to see uh, the decade of limited democracy that we saw uh, ripped away most recently. Um, so I think that generation still holds on to many of those lessons learned and have built on uh, some of the lessons of the recent coup and some of the shortcomings of the USDP and NLD governments and will hopefully contribute to a more holistic uh, and wide um, inclusive uh, policy for their country's future going forward. Hey, Tom. Oh, oh. Hey, <laughs>
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. I realize that this is an enormously difficult time for many people who love Myanmar these days, myself included. And at times we might despair that there's anything at all we can do to stop the horrors unfolding there. However, just the mere fact of staying informed is helping to bear continued witness and keep a focus on this issue when much of the international media has moved on. And the only way that we can do our part in continuing to provide this content is through the support of generous donors and listeners like yourselves. If you found this episode of value and would like to see more shows like it, please consider making a donation to support our efforts. Both monthly pledges or one-time donations are equally appreciated. Thank you deeply in advance. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. And donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.